Uh, I read a writer this week who described this passage that we read in Romans 5 as this rich theological text that sits way up on a precipice in a place where it can look down on these two climactic scenes at the garden where the origins of humanity fell into sin and death and to the wilderness where the second Adam, the Son of God, delivered us back to eternal life. That's Paul's gaze for us from the beginning of our condemnation to the future justification that is promised for us. And if you take that away from Lent, then that is enough. That's the picture we're journeying through these 40 days of Lent. To walk with Christ out of that fallen life into this future, which the Son of God has made possible by his obedience. I want to unpack this and unravel it a little bit for us in the themes that emerge in our readings today, if you'll allow an alliteration of our sins, our sacrifices, and our skins. Sins and sacrifices and skins. This picture we get in Genesis 2 may be one of the most well-known in the history of the world, certainly within the church. The choice of Adam and Eve to partake of the forbidden fruit. And many people's minds, I imagine, will run to whether or not this story is historical. Did it happen? And I won't try to enter in and resolve that for you. What is most significant is that we not miss the symbolism and the signs. It is a passage, like many in the ancient world, that sought to explain deep mysteries. Where did pain and childbirth come from? Where did marriage come from? Where did rebellion and sin come from? And all of these features of this complex passage in Genesis seek to help us understand the plight we find ourselves in. And it explains, above all, why it is you and I live in a world where there is theft and oppression and murder and war. How did all that come upon the earth? And the text seeks to explain the very, very seed that made it all possible. Go back to the words of the serpent. They're so telling when he says to Eve, did God not say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, of course, we know all of the trees were good for sight and good for food, and they were all provided for Adam and Eve. But the phrasing that the serpent comes with highlights the restrictiveness of God. Did he take all the trees from you? And Eve says, no, only one. And immediately the human mind recognizes that something has not been given. Some part of this creation and this world that God has made, God has said no. It's a fairly remarkable scene because the fruit that they look at is good to the eye and good for food and desirable for making one wise. All good and desirable things. How could God withhold this pleasurable thing from me? It's a question that resonates through our culture. Why would any of these good created things be bad? And God has placed his no. But it's the no that the Genesis is getting to us that really begins 
to put a fire to the spark of pride and resentment. Who will tell me no? I will be like God. That's the temptation. The serpent knows he's withheld something from you and you never knew it. And so this small little bit of pride, of envy, of resentment that something has been kept from us will be the thing that opens up the world that we know today of manifest sin. And so Lent is the season where we go and look with Psalm 51 for that deep thing in our heart that will take us down all these paths. So the woman took and ate and gave some to her husband and he ate with her. And their eyes were opened and they were ashamed. With sin comes the recognition of faults that Adam and Eve had been spared with. And there's something important about the way this story was told for Christians or for ancient Jews. There should always be a bit of nostalgia for us. Adam and Eve were jealous of the tree that they could not have, but when they had eaten of it, they knew shame they had not known before. And all of us who sit here with the psalmist who tells the Lord, hide your face from my sins. Know the deep regret and remorse and shame that attends to sin. And there was a moment when we did not have that. And so there is this sign that when we choose our own way, we open the path to shame. And Adam and Eve sewed loincloths and covered themselves from their disobedience. There is a good world there that is lost. We should taste that. We may not want to live in that place, but there was something lost that we should always long for. There's a certain innocence. This tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or some translate good and bad, is really difficult to know what it means. At the very least, we know it means moral knowledge. They didn't know what it meant to disobey. They didn't know shame. They didn't know what it means to have done something wrong and not be able to get it back again. God had graciously preserved that from them. And so when they take, they cast themselves into a world of fault and of regret. This is their expulsion from the garden. Commenters have long observed that the restriction from the tree of life was one of grace. If you could take and eat and sustain your life in a world of sin, it would be ruinous for you. Who wants to abide in this world of disease and of theft and of murder and of war and of division forever? It was a grace to pull them back into their mortality, away from having to live in a world of sin forever. Sins enter through the one man, Adam, and push the world into a season of sacrifice our sins and our sacrifices. Paul is opening this up. Adam pushed the world into an era of law. The law came in that sin might increase. These strange phrases that are all wrapped together in Romans 5, I joke with David today, and not enough verbs. Paul is like this often. He's caught up stringing together these phrases, these visions, contrasting Adam and the life in Christ, and the law came in that sin might increase. Go back to that garden scene, the moral world that Adam and Eve lived in. They had one law. As far as we can tell, they had thousands and thousands of trees. Certainly a lot of fruit. They're all good. They're all edible. Only one law, one tree. 
is forbidden them. It's a morally simple world. There's not much uh, prudence and discernment that has to go on. Eat those, don't eat that. This is again the way Genesis kind of brings in nostalgia. What a simple world that would be. But because they wanted the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they wanted a world of moral knowledge, now they live in a world understanding all the possibilities of fault. That's the era of law. That's the era of sacrifice. And the law does two things. Paul is, in a way, alluding to this in different kinds of ways. On the one hand, the law tells us what to do. It's long been recognized that the law is gracious. If you're a Christian and think the law is bad, I have to help correct you from that. The psalmist says over and over again, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. It makes me wiser than my enemies. It is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The law is God's provision for the post-garden world where moral faults were infinite. Think about this world. Just two kind of random examples. If a man has an ox and it gores another man's ox, they shall split the live ox between them. But if he knew it was a goring ox, then he shall pay restitution for the other ox. Well, how do you know if the guy knew it was a goring ox? The law is full of this kind of jurisprudence of litigation. And if it gores another man's animals and his rams or his children, he shall compensate him this much. It's a world that once you realize that the simple law of a single tree was so easy, Another law says, if you come across a nest in the field of the bird and are young, you may take the young but not the bird. It's a law simply recognizing the fact that you need to eat, but the bird needs to reproduce. Countless divisions like this in the law of how I can take and use the creation. And it's not really about birds at all. It's about life and about preserving it, about what we can and cannot use in the world. Hundreds of laws have to come in for Israel, and all of them only suggest, only hint at how to live. And as Paul says, the law of sin increases, shame increases, fault, remorse, error. And so the law provides a second thing, which is sacrifice. Sacrifice covered the sins. The blood of animals, the offerings of grain, were to appease God, to put away, as the psalmist says, it pains to tell us, Hide your face from my sins. Wash me, purge me, make me whiter than blood. The, the sin, the guilt that we carry with us in this world, Adam and Eve couldn't anticipate. And it hangs over us every day. And so the law provides the way to go and the way to correct when we have gone wrong. And what you should grasp from that, if you know the Old Testament or the life of the law, it is an endless cycle. I sin. I am ashamed, I sacrifice. I sin, I am ashamed, and I sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews says the priests offered sacrifices morning and night every day. An infinite loop of sin and death and guilt. Our sins and the world of sacrifice lead us into the world of skins. I force the alliteration a little bit there. The world of skins, our passage ends as you might Remember, Adam and Eve recognize that they have sinned and they sew loincloths for themselves. A sexual image. They're aware of sin. They're aware of desire. They're aware of covetousness and lust. And it is an unpleasant feeling to know how our hearts run amiss and afar from the Lord's ways.
And the Lord immediately takes them and sends them out of the garden, but he sows for them skins that are fit for the body. He covers the whole body with tunics. And I think, I believe, I've read it's Augustine who was the first to recognize that their little loincloths aren't going to last very long and all they do is cover from skin but the, from shame. But the loincloths prepare them to go to work. They are, Augustine says, grace. It's a work of toil. And you'll need covering for your shame and you'll need covering for the labor and the world that you'll have to face. God does not take in away that work that he gave was a grace to Adam to go and till and keep the garden. And because of their sin, he's provided a way to protect their bodies to go about their work. The skins, of course, come from an animal sacrifice. God has already, in this seed at the end of the garden, begun, begun to point a way that he will provide and cover for the sins of humanity. It was Augustine and later Milton who highlighted this theme that God who graciously clothed humanity with skins would take his own son to wear our own. To go to the desert where there was nothing, and yet he owned everything. To resist the temptation of the serpent, and to hold fast to the Lord. The power of Jesus wearing our skin, Milton says, can do more than the skins of the animals that covered us on the outside. They take with the skin and the life of the risen Christ and robe our nakedness within with righteousness. You hear that in Paul. That shame, that guilt, that unending impulse to do wrong. Christ has taken up life within us. This is the theme of Romans 6. I wish we would just keep reading. For the life that he had in the body, he died to sin, and we die with him in order that we might live with him in righteousness. You might imagine it this way, the sin, the world of law, the world of sacrifice, were clothed over and over again in a cycle of sacrifice and shame. And here in Christ, Lent reminds us that the risen Christ who wears human skin is a tree blooming to new life within us. Friends, you and I are partakers of the divine glory. He's in us now, and so Lent is that season that we journey on. No longer where we were before, simply in a cycle of sacrifice. But already a new work of creation has begun to happen through the new man, Jesus Christ, who's put away the work of Adam. Paul, I'll leave us with this image as we head down this journey of Lent. In Romans 12, leaves us with this really poignant image that plays so well on the sacrificial world. Therefore, offer your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, pleasing to God, and be transformed by the renewing of your mind. No longer the sacrifice of animals and death, but now we are, Paul says, living sacrifices. The life of Christ he's getting at after these 11 chapters is already at work making a new creation within us. And the path of Lent is to go about offering to God in thanksgiving lives of obedient sacrifice. Transformed by the Spirit within us is making us new again. May our God be gracious in this season of Lent to make us again like his Son. Amen.